our Sunday school. As uh, I get out the way, we're going to get ready to show a video in a, in, a, in a bit right here. The video is called The Case for Israel. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And uh, what it's going to go through is some of the different elements that aren't told a lot of times. The idea of Israel being a colonizer or the Palestinians simply being an oppressed people. And there's a lot of information out there that just isn't true. And there's a lot of information that is never really out there. And so we're going to look at this video this morning. Uh, once the lights are off, we're asking everybody to stay seated. And this will pretty much take the length of the whole Sunday school. Uh, but I, I do believe it's very informative, and there's a lot of insight here. If you're genuinely curious about the nation of Israel and Palestine and, and what's going on over there, this, is, this sheds a lot of light on different uh, areas and elements to that. And so uh, we can go ahead and get started with that right now. When Jimmy Carter wrote his book, he said he wanted to write his book to stimulate a debate. So the first thing Brandeis University did was invite him to debate me. And Jimmy Carter said, no, 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 I don't want to debate. I want to be up on the stage alone. And they said, well, how about if Dershowitz follows you? It's a great pleasure for me to be here with you this afternoon. The driving force for the resulting persecution and oppression of the Palestinians comes from a minority of Israelis and their desire for Palestinian land. When I propose this finally, we intended to create Palestinian peace, not apartheid, but erroneously people have put a colon there. My bottom line was there has been no peace efforts at that time for five years. And the Palestinians are horribly treated, and their treatment is not known at all, or minimally, in this country. I don't have Air Force One anymore, so I have to run. But I just, I just said that, that if you all have questions that I haven't been able to answer, uh, I'll let I'll let the moderator here pick out ten or twelve of them, and if you'll send the questions or email, I'll send you the answers back. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. President Carter has essentially congratulated the Palestinian leadership for rejecting Camp David in Taba. In his book, he said there was no possibility that any Palestinian leader could accept such terms and survive. I'm only glad he didn't make that statement to Anwar Sadat. It takes courage to make peace. Survival is not the only goal of a great leader. Making peace is the goal. And if the Palestinians had accepted Camp David and Taba, or even if they had rejected Camp David and Taba and come in with a counter offer, today we would not have had the second intifada. There would not be a security barrier. There would not be anything that President Carter could correctly or incorrectly, and I believe incorrectly, call apartheid. 
We did not hear today anything about the fact that the Palestinians could have had a state in 1938. The Israelis would have had a sliver along the coast, and the Palestinians could have had 80% of what is now Israel. They said no, because the Palestinians wanted there to be no Jewish state more than they wanted their own state. They could have had a state, they had a state in 1948, when Israel got 55%, but 40% of the arable land in that area, and the Palestinians got a majority of the arable land, and about a little less than half of the total land. New York, Friday, May 14, 1948. The United Nations General Assembly is in special session. Opposing the United Nations' decision to partition Palestine are the Arab states led by Syria's Faris al-Khuri. This plan is complicated. It is very hard to implement. It does not deserve, it does not conserve peace. It would lead to bloodshed. There are many difficulties. The Jewish representatives on the other side are waiting for their hour of destiny. The minutes of Britain's mandate are ticking to an end. The Palestinians, with all the other Arab states, invaded Israel and said, we don't want a state. We're happy to be occupied by Jordan and Egypt. We just don't want there to be a Jewish state. Will those in favor of this draft resolution please signify by raising their hand? They could have had a state in 1967 when Israel, you won't find this in President Carter's book, accepted resolution of the United Nations 242. It's not there, but it happened. Israel accepted 242. All the Arab states and the Palestinians got together at Khartoum and issued their three famous no's. No recognition, no peace, no negotiation. They could have had a state in 2000 and 2001. They said no. They said no to an incredibly generous offer. And the state would not have been a state separated by spider-like roads. It would have been a totally contiguous state. And you can see it in the maps that are in Dennis Ross's book, the maps that were shown to the Israelis, the maps that were constructed from the actual offers made at Camp David. If you don't believe me, and if you don't believe Dennis Ross, and you don't believe President Clinton, then listen to Prince Bandar of Saudi Arabia, who was the Saudi representative to the Camp David Accords. He said that Clinton and Dennis Ross are telling the truth. He said this very reluctantly about the offer, and that Arafat is telling a lie, and that Arafat's refusal to accept the offer at Camp David was a crime a crime against the Palestinian people and all the people in the area. But you won't read that in President Carter's book. Jimmy Carter's a very smart man. I've known him since 1976. I thought he was a man of good faith and goodwill. How can you explain always misrepresenting facts on the side of the Palestinians and against Israel? I can't fully comprehend what his motivations might be. Uh, I can say it's clear that he's, he has not made a serious effort to understand what took place. And he's, he simply embraced revisionism without looking at what the actual record was. A very close friend of, of President Carter, uh, Professor Kenneth Stein, who was the founding head of the Carter Center at Emory University, resigned his position after this book. And he gave us one of his major reasons is he sat with Carter at many of the meetings that President Carter had after he left the White House 
uh, with Middle East leaders. And he's the one who took notes of those meetings. And then he looks at what Carter says in the book about what, what happened in those meetings, and he says, these things didn't happen. This is not what was said. This is not what my notes say. Yes, there is apartheid in the Middle East. It exists in Saudi Arabia where there's gender apartheid, religious apartheid, all kinds of apartheid. But Israel, Israel, a country in which equality is extended to Arabs, to Christians, to Muslims, to blacks, to whites, where Arabs serve in the Knesset, where they serve on the Supreme Court, where they serve with equal status at universities, where affirmative action is part of Israel's policy, to call Israel apartheid? In Israel proper, the law is equal to all citizens, all residents, regardless of race, color, creed, religion, and gender. This is ensured both in the Declaration of Independence and in the constitutional laws which govern all legislation. Whatever Israel does as a Jewish state, it's problematic for, for Jimmy Carter. Indeed, his obsession with Israel. Uh, here's a man who toasted the Shah of Iran, who had close relations with the Saudis, uh, who was very good friends with Yasser Arafat, uh, has a problem with democratically elected Israeli Jewish leaders. So in my talking, Brandeis University, I said, email him the following question. Did you advise Yasser Arafat on Camp David and Taba, and if so, what was your advice? It's the only question Jimmy Carter has refused to answer. And he's refused to answer it from day one till today. I think the circumstantial case is overwhelming that Jimmy Carter has blood on his hands. The blood of 4,000 Palestinians, the blood of over 1,000 Israelis, and was a co-conspirator in a crime against the Palestinian people. Oh, but you hear from students, Jews were colonialists, like the British in India or the French in Algeria. Well, who were the Jews colonialists for? They came from Poland, they came from Russia, they came from Lithuania. Were they carrying the Polish flag? They left that far behind. They were immigrants. They came to Palestine for the same reason our grandparents and great-grandparents came to America, to live freely to live a Jewish life, to partake in democracy, to escape from pogroms, to develop Jewish literature and Jewish music, and a Jewish symphony and a Jewish university, all of which happened in Palestine well before any statehood was declared. That's self-determination. There is a Palestinian narrative, and Israelis must know the Palestinian narrative. There's an Israeli narrative, and the narratives don't often uh, uh, joined together, but there is also a truthful narrative. Israel is seen as this strange interloper, these Jewish crusaders who came and threw out the Arabs from their ancestral homes. There has been here a reversal of, uh, uh, of the perception of history and the facts of history. And I maintain that the only way you can really make the case for Israel is to go back to the historical facts. Jews probably lived in Palestine, or the land of Israel, consistently since uh, the end of the, the second millennium BC, from the 1200 BC, uh, continuously until the present day. Dealing with the archaeology of Jerusalem is an additional chapter 
to the very basic element that the Jewish people are staying and living in their homeland, meaning Israel. We are now above the city of David, which is a narrow spur, a hot dog-shaped hill, uh, which uh, has within it the remains of the earliest uh, occupation in Jerusalem, starting about 6,000 years ago. This is the place uh, where the uh, stage is for most of the events uh, mentioned in the Bible. We are uh, facing the historical basin of the old city, which is really the core of the conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians, the old city and the area around it. About 95%, I would say, of the sacred places are within this area for, the, for Christianity, Islam, and the Jewish uh, people. This is the area in which uh, the civilization of the ancient Israelites, which is the foundation of Jewish uh, history, uh, was forged. Last season, we found a small seal impression in a one centimeter diameter, you know, something, it's made of clay, and it was fired hard because of the fire of the destruction. And on it, just actually you could read, Yehuchal ben Shalemyahu ben Shuvi. This name appears in the Bible. It's a person. And he was a minister, an official, high official, at the time of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah. I mean, this is a direct, you know, um, hello from, from the past. Jerusalem is mentioned in the Bible alone uh, by name 667 times, but uh, the, the name Jerusalem is not even mentioned once in the Quran. We honor uh, the historic heritage of Jerusalem. This is unfortunately not done by the Islamic Waqf upon the Temple Mount who destroys even Islamic remains. I'm now in charge of uh, sifting through material which was brutally removed by the Islamic Waqf from inside the Temple Mount in 1999 by a barbaric excavation which was carried out by heavy machinery. What is happening in a very systematic way is that the Muslims on the Temple Mount are destroying that heritage to try to blot out the fact that Islam exists at the same time as other heritages, as other traditions exist. not acknowledging that when they have digs under the Temple Mount that are destroying the artifacts of the Second Temple, what they are trying to do is destroy human heritage. In my judgment, uh, if Israel were to turn over the old city of Jerusalem to the Palestinian Authority, the outcome would be disastrous for the holy sites because we have seen across the Middle East, from the Bamiyan Valley in Afghanistan to the Shiite mosques in Iraq, to Joseph's tomb in Nablus, that radical Islam shows no tolerance for the holy sites of other faiths. Therefore, uh, under Palestinian rule, Jerusalem will be put in very great danger.
The Jews established themselves in Palestine by dint of purchase of lands and establishment of settlements. They bought lands mostly from absentee Arab landlords who lived in Beirut or Damascus, but owned land in Palestine. They bought lands from them and established their settlements. Sometimes they had to evict um, Arab um, tenant farmers who didn't own the land but worked the land which had belonged to these absentee landowners. The Jews wanted to work the land themselves. They didn't want to share land with, with, with tenant farmers who didn't own the land. They didn't take land from anybody and when they evicted tenant farmers they did so within the, the bounds of the law. In World War I, the Jews of Israel were on the right side and supported the British and the Americans against the Germans, they were in part rewarded. The English had a very positive view of Zionism. Some British leaders, such as Lord Alfred Balfour, who was the, the foreign secretary, were what you call restorationists. They were uh, avid uh, Christians who believed that by restoring uh, the Jews to their ancient homeland that uh, that would precipitate the second coming of, of Christ. British policy in London and as exercised in Palestine was essentially a pro-Zionist policy in line with the, 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 the ideology, if you like, of the Balfour Declaration, support the establishment of a Jewish state. The British in the 1920s, as they began to realize that their promises under the Balfour Declaration could not be easily implemented, uh, tried to palliate the Palestinian Arabs by appointing a leader. Palestinian Arabs didn't have a leadership. They created a new office. They called it the Grand Mufti. The Grand Mufti, Mufti is simply an interpreter of Islamic law. Uh, it's not a position that holds any political power, but the British named uh, Haji Amin Hosseini to this position in the hope that he would uh, constructively interact with the British and perhaps reach an accommodation with the Jews. And just the opposite happened. Uh, Haji Amin Hosseini became the most rapidly anti-British, anti-Zionist, and indeed anti-Semitic uh, leader uh, perhaps the Palestinians have ever known. British finally are fed up with the Grand Mufti. They exile him to the Seychelles Islands. He manages to escape and he ends up in Nazi Germany, uh, becomes a, uh, an avid Nazi enthusiast. He actually visits concentration camps. He approves of this final solution. Um, and Hajimin al-Husseini's support for Nazism um, certainly does not redound to the Palestinian Arab benefit after the war. In contrast uh, to the Jews of Palestine who served with the British army and fought valiantly, here are the Palestinian Arabs uh, supporting the Nazis. And this fact was not forgotten by the world community after World War II and uh, becomes a very important part of the debate surrounding the partition of Palestine. Once the revelations emerged of what had happened in Europe, the camps were opened, the Allied troops went there, pictures were taken, pictures were broadcast around the world, the, the Western public opinion um, turned pro-Jewish, so there was massive public support in the West, especially in America, but also in England and France and other countries, for uh, the establishment of a Jewish state. The Jews understood they must have a state if they want to survive, and this must be the state uh, which was going to be established. All of this translated into the UN vote at the end of 1947 in favor of the establishment of Israel and to, into America's a recognition of Israel immediately after its establishment on the 15th of May. A new nation is being born. In the first Jewish city, Tel Aviv, their first prime minister, David Ben-Gurion, proclaims the independent Jewish state. British rule is at an end. Israel's war of independence, what the Palestinian Arabs call the Nakba, their disaster, 
really begins on the 30th of November, 1947, the day after the UN decides to partition Palestine into an independent Arab and independent Jewish state. Uh, the Jews accept the partition resolution, the Arabs reject the partition resolution, and they declare war. Uh, they go to war against the Jewish community of Palestine. They try to isolate and destroy settlements. They cut off the roads. Um, the Jews are almost defeated. Um, they come close to, to disaster in the spring of 1948 now. Uh, the Jewish, uh, the, the Zionist leadership under David Ben-Gurion resolves no longer to exercise restraint but to strike back. So they conquered swathes of Arab territory in Jerusalem, corridor in Western Galilee, Eastern Galilee, drove out Arab, the Arabs from these areas. Uh, many fled uh, as a result of um, um, fear, as a result of intimidation, uh, as a result of shelling. Uh, some were actually expelled by Jewish troops, but essentially it, it was a military um, move, not a political move, by the Zionist forces who were faced with either disaster, which they thought would end in the Second Holocaust, so there was a partition of the country at the end of the war. The Arab states essentially signed under duress the armistice agreements, but said, well, perhaps the future will, will tell whether these borders will remain permanent, and in their hearts essentially wanted to get rid of Israel, to destroy Israel. They wanted a second round, and a third round, and so on. They didn't accept Israel's existence. Israel didn't try to expel a single Arab until the Arab revolt, until the Arab states, all of them, refused to accept Israel as a Jewish state in 1948, pursuant to the vote of the United Nations. The Arab refugee problem was caused by the fact that the Palestinians and all of the Arab states attacked Israel. Now, Israel did expel some. I certainly agree with Benny Morris's historical analysis of what went on. But of course, so did many Arab states, make it impossible for Jews to live in Yemen and Iraq and in Syria and in Egypt. Then there was essentially an exchange of population where the approximately 850,000 Jews from Arab countries who were essentially forced to leave became refugees and similarly approximately 700,000 or so Palestinians became refugees. And this refugee problem, because it was never solved by the Arabs or the refugees also were not allowed back by the Jews, um, remains a con consistent and constant problem for the Middle East, for the Palestinians uh, who are in some way identified with this refugee problem, and for the Arab world in general, which regards the existence of the refugees as sort of a standing offense to their honor. What the Arabs have done here very cleverly is turn the, uh, the result of their aggression into its cause. When you ask them, why are you attacking Israel? Their answer was because of the refugees. But the Arab refugees were a result of the Arab aggression against the, the tiny Jewish state. The Arabs say it's the territories that are uh, the reason for the conflict. But you forget that before the Six-Day War of 1967, before the Arabs ganged up to attack Israel, we weren't in those territories. We came into these territories as a result of a war forced on us from them by the Arabs. With the Palestinians, the Israeli government in the summer of 1967 explored the possibility of creating an autonomous Palestinian entity in the West Bank and an entity that could transform into an independent state. 
Uh, but the Palestinian leadership on the West Bank turned the Israelis down as well, saying that if they made any agreement with the Zionists, the radicals would kill them. And the radical they mentioned by name uh, was Yasser Arafat. We can get all what we want. And so today, the Palestinian uh, position, even again of the most moderate Palestinians, still demands the return of millions of refugees and their descendants into pre-1967 Israel, as the borders that existed as of June 4th, 1967. Now, if that is carried out, then Israel will have a, an, Arab, an Arab majority will cease being the Jewish state. So it's an existential issue for, for Israel, and therefore every Israeli government and every American government has rejected that demand from the Palestinians. How can you have a Jewish democracy? Isn't that a contradiction in terms? And of course, that suggests that Judaism has a singular meaning, that Israel is a Jewish state, is Israel as a halachic state, or Israel as a state only for Jews. That's not what Israel as a Jewish state means. What Israel as a Jewish state means, a state in which Jewish values uh, can be expressed, in which the flag is a Jewish flag, based on the Talit, in which the national anthem proudly talks about Nefesh Yehudi, the heartbeat of a Jew, just like France is a French state and Canada is a Canadian state. Uh, Israel is not a Jewish state in the way that Every Arab country is a Muslim state. If you define a Jewish state as a state based on religious, halachic, Jewish traditional law, there is a problem. But if you define a Jewish state the way Theodor Herzl and Chaim Weizmann and David Ben-Gurion and your obedient servant define it, then there's no problem. Then you speak about the nationality, you speak about the nation state, the nation being the Jews the Jewish people who have a right of self-determination within the Jewish state. In a sea of totalitarianism and dictatorship and extremism, we are an island of sanity and uh, the outpost of democracy. I think that if you were to uh, privately talk to a lot of the Arab Israelis, they will tell you that in no uncertain terms they refuse to budge from Israel if there is some sort of a territorial swap, if Jerusalem, uh, the eastern part of Jerusalem is being offered to the Palestinian Authority. Arab Israelis in Jerusalem are saying, no way, we're not moving. And the reason they're saying they're not moving is that with all the problems of being an Arab in a Jewish-Israeli reality, they understand what it is to live in a free country. They understand what it is to be able to gather and worship freely and speak freely um, and, in fact, have representatives in the Knesset. We are misjudged. Again, not to say that we don't make our mistakes, but at least we have tools in Israel to deal with our mistakes. At least we have a Supreme Court, which is an open court, which does not close its doors because of standing, because of justiciability, because of the political question, because of extraterritoriality, because whatever you want. You have an open court, and you have a legislature and an executive branch who fulfill what we say. Israel has desperately sought to balance human rights. The hero of this is Aaron Barak, the president of the Supreme Court of Israel, whose cases could become a course on how to balance human rights against terrorism. A man who has stood up to the Israeli government, 
told them they couldn't torture, told them they couldn't send people in to protect their soldiers if it puts people at risk, telling them they couldn't shoot at ambulances even though ambulances carry terrorists. This is a country far better than our own, who has a Supreme Court far better than our own. I would trade our Supreme Court for theirs in a minute, and I'd throw in three outfielders to be picked later. <laughs> that has tried desperately to strike the appropriate balance. Has it always succeeded? No. Has it been imperfect? Yes. And I criticize its imperfections. And I urge all of you to criticize Israel whenever it warrants criticism. But I urge you all to look at the big picture. Look at the countries in the world in which real abuses of human rights occur, in which nobody is trying to strike any balance, in which you can't complain or protest the injustices, they need your help. Countries without a free press need your help. Israel has a completely open free press. Start protesting those countries. If you don't, you're a hypocrite. Israel, after all, is really fighting for the superiority of the moral code. We couldn't do it all the time because there was a Shoah. It was not a... Um, Emol and we pay the price. We were attacked, we have had to defend ourselves, but that wasn't our choice. The minute that we have a choice to make peace, we did it. The minute we can help other countries, we do it. That's our preference. When I'm in America, I'm asked, tell me please, Your Honor, do you, can in Israel a Palestinian go to the Supreme Court? And I'm shocked, because this guy may, may even be a, a human rights uh, activist. Of course he can. We had 300 cases every year coming from the occupied territories. I don't know any other democracy in the world where you can petition uh, for address of grievance as where citizens of Israel or Palestinians in the territories can directly petition the Supreme Court of Israel for redress of grievance and go right to the Supreme Court. In Israel, everybody is standing. Everybody can challenge. Everybody gets challenged. Everything is justiciable. Everything is subject to the courts. So when the Israelis closed off uh, access to Gaza, Supreme Court petition. When the Israelis uh, used military means that were questionable to some, a petition to the Supreme Court. And the Palestinians win many of their cases. And that's kind of democracy in action. You don't judge a democracy by its perfection, you judge it by how it deals with its imperfections and how it responds to imperfections and what remedies it makes available not only for the majority of its citizens but for the minority of the citizens. I don't think in the history of democracy there's ever been a parliament in which uh, a minor minority representative spoke so determinedly against the host state, against the host society in which they live. I listened to some bigoted speeches against Israel, the like of which you won't hear in any parliament. For instance, one Knesset member said, we got rid of the Turks, we got rid of the British, we'll get rid of you, Israelis. Unfortunately, for Israel to be able to get its story across, it's not sufficient to talk in sound bites. It's not sufficient to say, well, we want peace, and they don't, or, or whatever, because that's not really what it's about. It's not about peace. It's about who we are. It's about what we stand for, it's about what we teach our children, and it's about what the other side stands for and what they teach their children, and what values are manifested in their behavior and in their actions. 
And these are kind of things that take a while to explain. Let's consider the security barrier itself. The Israel Supreme Court wrote a series of decisions saying the barrier is permissible, but that it has to take into account the needs of the Palestinian people, the needs of security, and the burden essentially is on the military to justify every kilometer of where the barrier exists. But at the same time, the international court at The Hague ruled that the whole barrier was in violation of international law because you can't have a fence uh, that's in uh, territory that's uh, occupied, which is the correct rule of law. So the first question we asked ourselves, can you make a fence at all? And our answer was yes and no. You can have a fence if it's a security fence. You can't have it if it's a political fence, if it's a, a border. This you can't do because it's an occupied territory, because in order to do it, you have to take possession of land, which is not your land. The second question is, if it's not a political, do you have a military necessity for it? Because only if there is a military necessity, you can build a fence. The fence is intended for one reason, is built after 10 years of terrorism. Israel faced 10 years of terrorism, 10 years of suicide bombings and roadside shootings and thousand, more than a thousand people killed, sometimes more than a hundred people in a month killed. In a tiny country like Israel, that's a terrible toll. Multiply it by 50 to imagine the casualty numbers that would be in this country, because Israel is one-fiftieth the size of the United States. It reminds me how insistent in the West to call uh, our anti-terrorist barrier Berlin Wall. I was behind Berlin Wall. Berlin Wall was meant to keep hundreds of millions of people from freedom, from the free world. This, uh, uh, this so-called wall is meant to keep terrorists, not to let terrorists to reach Jews and Arabs alike and to kill them. We are standing uh, next to the security fence. You can see the security fence on my my left hand side and we can see the wall we're talking about around 800 kilometers of fence of security fence from the north to the south just four percent of all, all of those 800 kilometers it's a wall this is the road number six the main highway of israel that connects the south and the north and it's less than 300 meters from here every simple sniper that have a very simple gun from the houses of Kalkilia can shoot very easily any kind of car that driving along the road number six. And those are uh, civilians that are living in Tel Aviv, in Ramad Gan, in Beersheba, that are driving from place to place. But how can we really approach Israel? Instead of just blaming the other party, how can we really approach Israel to give? Instead of bombing certain places or having checkpoints or building the wall, Israel should not compromise at all on checkpoints. Checkpoints have been extraordinarily effective. 10,000 terrorist acts have been prevented by checkpoints. And given a choice between waiting an hour and uncomfortableness and having people go into the middle of downtown Tel Aviv and blow up buses, I have to tell you, if I were a Palestinian or an Israeli or somebody from Mars, I would much prefer to see the delays and the checkpoints. Checkpoints will disappear instantaneously when terrorism disappears.
the area around Jerusalem was completely open. They can enter and they do enter from almost every side into the city. After Camp David, we paid with the life of 250 the first year, 450 Israelis in the second year. And then only when it accumulated into 1,000 Israelis exploded in discotheques, bus stations, restaurants, uh, pizza, uh, shops, or even uh, Passover, uh, Seder uh, ceremonies, uh, that we were able to stop it by uh, building the fence. So basically, the only solution in the long term is to have completed fence. The Palestinians here, the terrorists here in the Gaza Strip, developed a different mechanism of terror of building these Qassar rockets and launching them onto Israel. That white fence you see is the internationally recognized border between Israel and the Gaza Strip. One of the reasons we have Qassams coming out of this area is because we can't have suicide bombers coming out of this area. It's very hard to cross over this fence, so it's not that Israel likes sending in soldiers or planes uh, uh, bombing areas in the Gaza Strip. It's that the only way to stop a Qassam is stopping it while it's still on the ground, or rather while it's still being fabricated. If it was before the pullout from Gaza, I would have made one kind of argument. Now I won't bother. Now I'll say, well, Israel's not occupying Gaza. Gaza has swiftly become a, uh, a, a place from which rockets are launched against Israeli civilians in the state road without stop. And the Israeli government is not yet ready to go to war over it. So the civilians are having enormous psychiatric suffering concrete structures that have been set up in every corner of the city because when a Qassam is launched, it will arrive within 40 seconds and be detected within 20. So essentially, when you hear the siren, you have 10 to 15 seconds to find cover. And if you're playing soccer in the soccer field, there's nowhere to hide. And if you're walking to the shopping mall, there's nowhere to hide. And the Israeli government set up these concrete structures so that kids going to school or going to play soccer can hide under when they hear this terrible siren going off. And this is what kids have been living with for the past seven years. Just for everyone to understand, this is a Qassam rocket. At the end of the month, on the 27th, this rocket in fact landed around this area, landing in the city of Zderot, and this is just one of the 7,000. You're being attacked for only one reason, because Hamas knew that they can take advantage of Israel's higher sense of morality. They fire their anti-personnel rockets, their murder weapons, from behind human shields. Their main goal is to deliberately kill as many Israeli citizens, civilians, men, women, children, as they possibly can. But their goal is also to try to provoke the Israel Defense Forces, because this is their cruel arithmetic of death. Israel obtained footage of Qassam rockets being fired from a school, a grade school operated by the UN, by UNRWA, the agency to help Palestinian refugees. This is a school. And a terrorist with a launcher uh, 
here. He is uh, doing something very, very cynical, uh, using children, very young children as human shields. He's arranging the launcher with the rocket. He is running to the school, and then he launched the rocket. Then we have to decide what we have to do. Are we going to hit the terrorist with 30 or 50 very young children or not? We decided not to hit the, the terrorists, but you can see how they behave. The moral issues that are really concerning me as the Air Force commander is really concerning all our people. There are two, let's say, two steps while fighting or while, line, uh, while launching uh, a missile, for example. The first one is to give the permission from the headquarters with the best intelligence that you have, uh, with the understanding that this is the right time to do what we are going, what we want to do. And the second step is after you launch a missile, it takes time to the missile to fly. And from the time that the commander of the operation in the headquarters is giving the approval to launch, we move to the step that the fighter that are launching the, the missile has the responsibility by himself. This responsibility is so deep that each and every soldier, pilot in the Air Force and in the IDF understand that this is part of his mission, his moral mission and operational mission. Now, what do you do with a piece of information that you know that your population is undergoing a, a missile attack originating from a school? Do you try to hit the school and, 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 and tragically maybe have to deal with the consequence of killing innocent kids or expose your own kids on the other side of the border because it's immoral to attack a school? Now, that's the type of dilemma Israel has to deal with every day. Israel said, we're cutting off the Gaza Strip. We cannot supply them with any more goods. If they want to lead their life, let them lead their life. We can no longer be intertwined with their economy. But then the world says you're cutting That's all we have for this morning, enough time for the video. Uh, one of the, the reasons why we show this video is because we want people to understand. When we talk about Israel and Palestine and take these general ideas of just people, vague people, what we have to acknowledge and recognize, especially here in America, and mostly any, human beings in general, we project. We want to envision the Palestinians like people we would have in our country. People who go to church on Sunday, people who shop at HEB, people who go to work eight to five. But what you have to understand is when we start talking about people, we start talking about a nation state, there is a religion tied to it. There are ideologies entrenched in it. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Cubs of the Caliphate. These are training camps for children under the age of 12 on how to use AK-47s. I'm sorry, that's not us. 
And when we project this idea that Israel is this, this overbearing colonizer over this group of people, and just imagine your family being there. No, my family doesn't shoot rockets out of our backyard. That's the truth. But you can tell today in our, our society, this is not considered at all. If you show any evidence, if you show any kind of indictment on a culture or a people, which should be there, I think we can all agree living in a society where you have to hide under concrete barriers is not acceptable. That you, you start to re recognize and, and realize that this isn't just about people in general. This vague group, this concept of, of just humanity. There are ideologies that are deeply entrenched. Religious ideologies that are deeply entrenched. Killing other people is part of that ideology. And we wanted to, to show this. And, and the second thing I hope you take away from this as we, as we get ready to close right here, and that is you imagine living in a nation and in a state where you're surrounded by enemies. You imagine living in a place where your daily survival really is at risk. You imagine when you hear those sirens having to run underneath a concrete barrier. And I think commonsensically for most of us, we would say, why would you do that? And if you're going to tell me rationale, reason, or logic, I don't, I don't agree with you. I just can't imagine that. Does it make sense? That's where we step back and say there is a biblical imperative. There is something drawing the nation of Israel to stay in the middle of that situation. There's something far greater than reason. And I believe it's biblical prophecy. I believe you start to see this overarching sense these people are there. Israel is there because God put them there. I mean, you see the video. I, I, when I first started seeing videos about Israel, when I first started learning about this, I thought, maybe they're not showing the pretty parts of Israel because I don't know why people would stay there. And you start to realize as time goes on, no, it has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with the promise made to Abraham. Even they, secular Jews will stretch back to it and say, this is the land that God has given us. And the reality for us this morning is, when we start talking about Israel and Palestine, there has to be a voice spoken because it's not in the media today. And the strategy that, that's being waged against us today, even our own country, where they'll provoke and turn around after we do something after the provocation and say it's our fault. And you can see that over and over in this, in this case. And so... Uh, we're going to close Sunday school off this morning. This next Sunday morning, Pastor will be continuing on this. And uh, we hope you enjoyed it this morning. But we're going to get started with service in a couple of minutes. Lord bless you.